Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Joining us from New York is Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and her guest, John Rowe, who is head of ISS Analytics. This week, we'll look at the transatlantic pay gap among bank CEOs, a look at Frankfurt as it emerges as the new favourite EU financial centre, and finally, a warning from the Bank of England over consumer debt. First, let's take a look at bank pay. America's big banks are paying their chief executives twice as much as their European competitors. According to research done for the FT, the best-paid CEO, J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon, was awarded $28 million, more than six times as much as BNP Paribas' Jean-Laurent Bonafé, for running a similarly-sized French bank. Well, down the line from New York, our investment banking correspondent, Laura Noonan, has been speaking about the trend with John Rowe, head of ISS Analytics, which crunches the numbers on pay and other topics for over 1,700 investor clients. So overall, what do you make of the level of CEO pay? Is it something shareholders can live with now banks are becoming more profitable? Well, the shareholder votes tell the story. When we look at how shareholders have responded to say on pay votes, we see fairly strong support for bank CEOs around the world. When shareholders are asked, are the executive pay programs appropriate? For the most part, they're responding favorably with a few notable exceptions. And we do see quite a divide between how much CEOs are earning in Europe and how much they're earning in the US, or I guess even between US and the rest of the world. Why is that? You know, that's a great question. And it's something that's not limited to just banks. This is actually across almost every sector we look at. The U.S. executive pay is, for the most part, much higher. Part of this is because of benchmarking practices. When we look at how companies set pay, traditionally they've used other companies that are similar in terms of size or uh, economic footprint or other factors to try to figure out what they should pay their CEOs. And along the way, as companies have done that, a lot of them have tended to choose companies that we call aspirational, companies that are a little bit larger than them. And over time, that led to escalating pay. Now, we're talking about something that's played out over 20 years or more in the U.S. We haven't seen the same effects happen outside the U.S. You know, ex-U.S. pay is traditionally a little bit more restrained. In fact, in some markets, much more restrained than it is in the U.S., And I think that's notably because some of the ways that outside the U.S. how executive pay has been set, oftentimes it's been more inward-looking than it has been outward-looking to set those pay levels. And when companies have looked internally to set their pay levels, it's led to more restrained pay increases for senior executives. Okay. And when you think about banking being such a global international industry, is it possible, do you think, to maintain that big gap between how much chief executives are paid in the U.S.? and how much they're paid in the other global markets when they're all competing on the global stage? You know, that's the million-dollar question, or for some of these executives, it's perhaps the $20 million question. 
you know, over time, uh, we have seen European banks start to become, in some cases, a lot more U.S.-like when it comes to their pay packages. But oftentimes, the ways they become more U.S.-like has been through the mechanisms of pay, looking at performance-based pay vehicles rather than the magnitude of pay. I think the shareholder bases for a lot of these international banks have done a fairly good job at keeping the pay practices contained to the local geographies where the banks are operating. However, as some of these banks really expand into more global markets, the global footprints and the responsibilities and the exposures that these companies have are much more similar to their U.S. cousins, the very large banks. So I think it's a matter of time until we see some pay inflation spread around the world. I think it will be a lot more restrained than what we've seen in the U.S. When it comes to the overall level, if we look at the U.S. in particular, do you think if we see banks do continue to do well, if they make bigger gains from interest rate rises, if the U.S. economic recovery takes off, do you think that we will see executive pay shoot above the $30 million mark? So this year, I think the best paid would have been $28.2 million. Are we getting closer to that $30 million point, And do you think that we will tip past that? You know, I think it's only a matter of time until we see a bank CEO hit that $30 million mark. You know, we're getting close, as you said. There are a couple of large U.S. banks that have already topped the $20 million mark and a couple already over the $25 million mark. When we look historically over time, CEO pay for the large companies typically is somewhere in the 6% a year in terms of increases. So if you plot that out, it's not too many years until we should see a number like that. Now, is there a natural point of resistance at $30 million when it comes to shareholders and, and when they look at compensation packages? We haven't seen any point of natural resistance so far as long as companies are performing well. What we've seen shareholders largely do is, as long as the pay programs aren't extremely large compared to peers, largely give executive compensation a pass as long as performance and total shareholder return is strong. Thank you very much, John. And that's certainly a topic that we at the FT will be continuing to watch with interest, as I'm sure investors in banks shall as well. Let's move on now to a look at the whole Brexit debate and how different EU financial centres are shaping up in their battle to win business from London. Frankfurt seems to be edging ahead, Martin. We've had a few banks over the past week or so come out publicly and talk about moving staff and operations to Frankfurt for the first time, really. Yeah, and the announcements have been coming thick and fast in the past week, notably from the big US banks and several of the big Japanese banks as well. And it seems as though these big global banks that have large operations in London from which they serve the rest of the EU have decided that such as the uncertainty over what the outcome of the Brexit negotiations will be and whether there'll be a transition period, that they just can't afford to wait any longer. And so they're putting their contingency plans into motion. And particularly, I would say, for investment banking, for the financial markets trading businesses, we're seeing Frankfurt emerge as the favoured hub. Most recently, Citigroup has come out and said that they're going to establish an EU broker-dealer, which is the main trading operation in Frankfurt. Others that have also made a similar announcement, Morgan Stanley has indicated that it's going to base its main EU broker-dealer business in Frankfurt. And Deutsche Bank has said that they are going to move hundreds of billions of assets that they currently have in London over to Frankfurt, and they're going to establish a second 
booking operation in Frankfurt for investment banking assets that are related to EU clients. And they've already talked about moving thousands of jobs out of London, mostly back to Frankfurt. It's worth a final word about Bank of America, because they are one of the few that's come out publicly and said, actually, we're going to choose Dublin as our centre. Yeah. Bank of America has said their main EU hub is going to be in Dublin. I think they're going to have some operations elsewhere in Europe. So they might have some trading operations in Frankfurt. Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan have said that they're going to spread their operations around. So I think what we're seeing is that you know investment banking trading will be Frankfurt focused. You'll have asset management, mainly in Luxembourg. And then you'll have things like custody and security services and back office operations of the banks in Dublin. So it's not going to be one place where all of this Brexit affected business is going to move to. And of course, what you'll also have, I suspect, in terms of the investment banking advisory businesses, they will locate a lot more people on the ground in countries where they're servicing clients, whereas they might have previously have been London-based and fly out to Madrid or France or whatever. What they yeah. call the coverage bankers. Exactly. So they're the people who are dealing with the clients for corporate banking services or investment banking services. And currently, a lot of the American and Japanese banks have those coverage bankers for Italian clients, French clients, German clients, all based here in London. Often they are Italians, French and Spanish and Germans. And what most people think is going to happen is that they will move back to their home markets, the markets where their clients are based, rather than kind of parachuting in from London into those markets. Very good. Let's move on to our third and final segment for today. And Emma, you've been looking at what Alex Brazier has been saying about consumer debt. Alex Brazier is the head of financial stability at the Bank of England. He gave a pretty hard-hitting speech on Monday evening. He did. He warned about pockets of debt posing a growing risk to everyone else in the economy. And his concern is that the increase in consumer credit, which has grown by 10% over the past year, is posing a threat to the economy as household income comes under pressure as a result of weak wage growth and higher or at least increasing inflation. In particular, he notes three areas of concern within consumer credit. One of them is some of the relaxed standards he's seeing in terms of the credit card issuance and personal loan issuance. For example, in the market, there are increasing terms for 0% balance transfers, which the regulators have put the spotlight on recently. And also some of the rates on personal loans have dropped pretty low, below 3% in some instances on 10-year loans. The second area he's highlighted is the increase in high loan-to-income mortgages. And the third is the rapid rise of the car loans market, which has really jumped up in the past year. So he's shining the spotlight on these three areas. It's worth noting that in terms of the car loans market, banks aren't necessarily the biggest players. Lloyd's has the largest share of car loans of the high street banks in the UK, but a lot of the lending is done by car manufacturing arms and specialist lenders. It's interesting, isn't it, that he's come out now and said this because it builds on warnings only a few weeks ago from the Financial Policy Committee, which cited consumer lending as one of its financial stability concerns. 
It did. The Bank of England has been pretty vocal since the start of the year, really, on the rise of consumer credit. It recently required banks in the UK to set aside more money in its capital reserves underneath its counter-cyclical buffer. So it's ensuring that a lot of the banks are setting aside money in the good times to prevent against risks building up should the economy take a turn for the worse. But this is certainly an area the Bank of England is concerned about, I think, given recent warnings about a slowdown in the economy as well and the risk that borrowers come under increasing pressure and then start to fall into arrears or default on particular areas of debt, such as car loans or credit cards. Definitely a key one to watch. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Emma here in the studio, Laura and her guest John Rowe from ISS in New York. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.